Welcome to the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. Do you like cooking, reading about food, or even just eating? Then this podcast is for you. My co-host Charlotte and I work in the food industry. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, meeting the people who make it all happen, and showing you what's going on. Together, we'll bring you an inside view from the food industry with our unique perspectives from our work behind the scenes in food creation and production. Every week, along with our special guests, we'll cover different foodie topics, from baking to growing your own, home cooking, outdoor cooking, and even booze. Our aim is to take a positive look at what the nation is cooking and eating right now. There's so much adaptation, galvanization, and collaboration across the entire food system at the moment. And we'll be talking to some very special guests about the changes in their world, professional and personal, about remodeling, rethinking, and innovating with so much turned upside down and sharing some unique perspectives from field to fork. We'll also consider what food will look like in the future, in the home and outside. This podcast is sponsored by Moorish Hummus, a tasty treat for when eating in is the new going out. Moorish produces a range of delicious dips, including smoked hummus and now new velvet hummus. Moorish is available in Sainsbury's, Ocado and many other stores. Every week, our lucky listeners will be in with the chance to win some delicious dips in our competition at the end of each show, along with some other exciting gifts. I'm Jules Waddell, founder of Moorish Hummus. Yes, there is a link. And I'm here with my co-host Charlotte, award-winning cookery, writer, teacher and chef. For more on us, check out lovemoorish.co.uk and charlottepike.co.uk. We'll also keep you updated on what shops are open when and for whom on our website pandemic-pantry.co.uk. So, it's time to pull up a chair at the table, sink into the sofa or relax into bed and get ready for the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Pandemic Pantry Podcast. It's the last one in the series and it's going to be amazing. This week, we'll be talking to two incredible guests about their life during lockdown and what's happening with the reopening of hospitality and the food industry. We'll also find out how some of our lovely guests from other episodes have been getting on since we last spoke to them. And finally, in case this is the first episode you've listened to, we do like to say up front that we know the audio quality of our content isn't perfect and occasionally contains the odd glitch. This is due to the nature of the pandemic and the fact that we and our guests are recording from home with the less than optimal audio acoustics and the occasional Wi-Fi wobble. So for the final time in series one, on to the show. Hi Charlotte, how are you? Hello Jules, I'm fine, thank you. Can't believe it's the last in the series. It's been really interesting thinking back over the last few weeks. It's a sort of strange mixture of time sort of flying by and actually really going slowly. It's been so strange, but above all, I'm just very, very aware of how lucky I've been. And I know that's not been the case for everyone. You know, life hasn't been without its stresses and challenges, but I'm very aware of how how fortunate I am. And I'm very aware that that means I have been a very privileged to survive as well as I have and I just feel very very aware of that as we come to the end of this series. How are things with you Jules? Absolutely I know what you mean. I'm fine thank you and I think even just you and I talking over the last three months we've 
off air, we've been catching up with each other's lives and we've both been through a few things and that is life. But ultimately, both on your side and my side, we're coming out relatively unscathed and that is definitely not the case for everybody. Business is all right for us. I'm happy to say Moorish is still on the shelves and doing well. My family are well. It's actually my son's 13th birthday today. And strange as it is, I've had a a birthday in lockdown and now he's having a birthday. The children are not complaining. It's just quite incredible how people, young and old, are adapting. And yeah, amazing that we've, we've managed to put together this podcast. And it has been an absolute blast. I can't believe we're at the end of series one. When I contacted you about starting the show, Charlotte, we had no idea what it would be like, what an adventure it would be, what an amazing set of guests we'd be talking to. And actually, it's so strange now when I think about it. I'd only met you once in person. And I was saying to you at one point in lockdown, I speak to you more than I'm speaking to anybody else because we were doing all of our our Zoom recordings. And at one point, there was quite a lot of recording going on at, at one time. And I do now consider you a good friend. I'm really glad that we've been able to do this together. I'm sure the listeners have really enjoyed listening to all of your fantastic cooking tips um, that we've been lucky enough to be able to share with people. And I just want to say thank you, Charlotte, for being my co-host. It's been so much fun. Oh, that's really kind of you to say. And I would just like to thank you because none of this would have happened without you. I have truly enjoyed all of it. It has been an absolute joy recording with you and just chatting to you over the last few weeks and months has just been so lovely to catch up. You know, some days it's been four times a day and then we go for a few days without speaking, but it's been a constant and it has been wonderful. Totally new experience for me. I've not done this before. So you have been helping me along with all of your BBC Radio 4 experience. And I just would like to reiterate my thanks to every one of our guests as well for taking the time to speak to us because that has been such a privilege as well. Not only speaking to you, Jules, but all of our guests and hearing about their work and their lives and what's going on during this time, which none of us will forget. So thank you to you and all of our guests and of course to our listeners. So on to the show. So what have we got this week, Jules? Well, I don't like to say we've saved the best to last because we have had an incredible lineup of guests. But this week we have two wonderfully special guests. I am so excited. We have got the legendary Darina Allen from the Ballymallow Cookery School, where you yourself trained Charlotte. And we've got Michel Rue Jr. coming on to tell us what he's been going through at La Gavroche and what his customers can expect now that they've reopened. So I cannot wait a moment longer. Let's jump into our chat with Darina. Darina Allen is a best-selling cookery writer and teacher. She is the founder of the world-renowned Ballymaloo Cookery School in Ireland. The Ballymaloo Cookery School opened in 1983 at her family home in East Cork. The school has gradually expanded over the years to offer an ever-increasing range of recreational and professional courses, including its internationally acclaimed 12-week certificate course. I am one of the thousands of students who have undertaken this course over the decades. Students come to Shanagari from all over the world. Courses at Ballymaloo are unique and special as they have a particularly strong focus on fabulous quality ingredients. Much is grown on the school's 100-acre organic farm and what is not grown on site comes from very special quality producers and suppliers in the local area and from across Ireland. 
This ethos is an integral part of the Ballymaloo family businesses, which includes nearby hotel Ballymaloo House, founded by her late mother-in-law, Myrtle Allen. Mrs. Allen turned Ballymaloo House, which was her family home, into a small restaurant in 1964 by placing a notice on her gate and inviting people to come and dine in her rural home. Each night, she served a daily menu, including ingredients from the family farm and local area. And the menu was only decided after the dayboat fishermen had delivered their catch and the best local produce had been selected. Mrs. Allen recognised that these ingredients she had on her doorstep were as good as any in any country in the world and had a deep respect for the land and a strong belief in nourishment through excellent food. Just over 52 years ago, Darina came down to Ballymaloo as a recent college graduate to work with Mrs. Allen in her kitchen, which was fast gaining a reputation. As they say, the rest is history, but she married Tim Allen and has been instrumental in developing and championing the family businesses to not only create a thriving gastronomic destination in East Cork, but cementing Ireland's reputation for good food at home and abroad. This includes her work as a pioneer in Ireland's slow food movement and a champion of farmers markets. She has written for the Irish Examiner for over two decades and has recently published her 19th book, One Pot Feeds All. She has been a regular on television for decades and has won more awards than I could hope to list. Darina Allen, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Thank you, Charlotte, and thank you for inviting me. It's a great honour and it's lovely to wave again and uh, to catch up. Absolutely, and thank you so much for making the time to speak to us. So, Darina, how have the last few weeks been for you? I believe you had to close down the cookery school in week 10 of the 12-week course with students from all over the world with you. What have been your experiences over the last few months? Yes, well, on Friday the 13th of March, and it would be a Friday the 13th, we had to come to terms with the fact that we simply had to close the school at that point. And the students were devastated. You know, they really didn't want to miss the last two weeks. That was it. And then we had to we employ here on our Undertaker organic farm, and we've got extensive gardens and greenhouse, all of that. We employ over 55 people, and that doesn't include Bellingham House, the restaurant. You know, it does. So suddenly we had to think, what on earth can we do now? And uh, so many people depending on us for their livelihood, apart from the students and so on in the school. So basically we had to reinvent ourselves within a couple of days. So we've always had a little shop here at the cooking school and we uh, had a farm, a food from the farm stand there. And of course we also sell our raw milk from our little herd of Jersey cows and our homemade butter and yogurt and buttermilk and all of that and other and all the lovely organic produce from the farm and the eggs from our happy lazy hens all that stuff and our own beef but so we sold that but it was sort of smallish so suddenly we had to just expand all of that really quickly to do just food and because at that time the country went into lockdown as well so people could for a while only literally travel within two miles of their home. They could go a little further if they were getting food, but basically we were then sort of scrambling to feed our local community. And so as well as that, the many of our local community who were very busy and all of that normally would have shopped in the supermarkets. And so they discovered the 
treasures that were in their own area. So also then the teachers, I suppose we kept on uh, about 29 of our staff were able to stay, uh, uh, continue to work. Some of the others were furloughed because they might have had, you know, health issues in the family or something like that. But so we had 29 people, the gardeners and the farm manager and all of that down on the farm in the gardens. They continued to sow seeds, transplant and produce so they would, we would have uh, future harvests. And that was the, really the time of the year, really busy time, the gardens on the farm. And the seeds have to go in because if they don't go in, Basically, you don't have any produce. So they all stayed on. And then the teachers, many of whom you'll be still familiar with, they actually rotated between the farm and the gardens and the kitchen. So when they were in the kitchens, they were cooking nonstop, you know, stews, soups, tagines, pâtés, all kinds of good things and sweet treats and everything for the shop. And then they would rotate the next day, they would sow seeds and things. So they absolutely loved that because it gave them a much greater understanding of the work that goes into growing and producing food and all of that. And then we continued, of course, to, to feed all of our staff as we always do. It's very important for me that all of our lovely team have a delicious lunch and it was even more important than ever that everybody could keep nourished and continue to boost their immune system. So that happened. And then, then the next blow that came was quite quickly... The Irish government, although overall they did a really good job, but they had to make a lot of very quick decisions. And one of the things they decided to, was to close the farmers' markets around the country. Now, this was one of the few mistakes they made, really. The farmers' markets in all of our country should not have been closed. They were a vital part of the local food system. And also, there was no plan B for the farmers and arson juices and so on, whose hens kept laying, whose vegetables kept growing, whose pigs kept fattening and all of that, suddenly overnight, many of them whose entire livelihood depended on the farmers' markets were left with absolutely no income and nowhere to sell their produce. So we quickly set up an East Cork branch of Neighbour Food. Now, Neighbour Food was actually, it's a bit like your farm drop in the UK, a similar sort of a, a different route to market. And um, basically it was started concept was started by Jack Crotty, who was a past student. Uh, you probably know Jack. I actually worked on the stall of my first Saturday with his mum. Simon, <laughs> my goodness, what a yeah. wonderful pair. Anyway, he'd had a couple of neighbour food markets, online farmers markets around the Cork area. We set one up in East Cork so that the local farmers and food producers, cheesemakers, fish smokers, etc., could actually put their food online and they could sell it. So that, that was fantastic. It saved the livelihood of many of the producers, although some would, of course, been also selling to the service industry, the restaurants and hotels, of course, all closed their doors as well as they did over with you in the UK. And so a lot of people, 70 or 80% of their business would have been the service industry, but at least they had some cash flow when they were selling to the neighbour food markets. So we, apart from just doing the one in East Cork, we also supplied some of our produce to four other neighbourhood food markets around Cork. And the neighbourhood food thing has just gone into orbit around the country. And it's been such an important thing during this COVID-19. So there were a couple of things. And then we used to, if you remember, have Saturday pizzas as well in our wood-burning oven. That used to be just on Saturdays. And of course, it was like a pizza cafe. But we changed that to takeout. 
So basically, we continued to cook pizzas every Saturday, but people would order them ahead and we'd take them out. Then we also, if you remember our food truck that we always used to run for a couple of months in the summer, we have located that now behind the back of the school. So, and there's a whole wonderful grass area there. So we bought some more picnic tables and so on. So people could have takeout coffee. We put all our little piggies and sweet treats and quiche and various other things into packaging of course so people come they order their coffee or homemade lemonade or kefir or whatever and then this is one of the tables well social distancing and it's become quite the destination because um, people were gradually let out when lockdown was gradually eased people were desperate to get out and to meet friends so that's really been lovely and then if you remember our bread shed which is at the back of the school we're like trailer trash with all of these <laughs> You know, the, what used to be refrigerated trailers that were delivering, you know, produce all around the country. They have decommissioned those after 10 years and then you can buy them. And uh, you can, of course, set up a little food business or whatever else in them. So one of those, if you remember, is the bread shed. It's all, you know, it's got a cauldron, a great big deck oven and all the rest of it. So my goodness me. And then we make, Jen and Tim there, make uh, this wonderful sourdough bread i know you're an, uh, you're a great bread maker as well so they uh, it's a 48 hour absolutely natural ferment they make that and a couple of other breads plus these amazing cinnamon buns that people cycle out from cork from wow well, <laughs> but anyway people couldn't get bread you see i mean all of suddenly the whole i mean have we learned so many things from covid19 and many of them i hope we'll remember the lessons but one of the things was that, uh, you know, the supermarkets, of course, ran out of several things. People were panic buying in the beginning. And the other thing that happened was, of course, many people discovered that they were incredibly competent in their careers, but when they were suddenly found themselves at home or working from home or furloughed, uh, having to do 21 meals a week, oh, my God did they suddenly realize that how skilled we'd allowed ourselves to become, how helpless, how dependent on other people. So, you know, they, when they had to try and cook. And so cooking, as over with you, cooking and gardening have shocked to the top of the agenda. People are enjoying it and relearning skills and realizing that this whole term, food security, is not just something, you know, in the distant past that doesn't going to affect any of us, suddenly the whole thing about the importance of food security becomes much more relevant. I mean, I was nonstop on the phone, people looking for recipes, and we did some little videos. That was another thing we did, actually. Mm -hmm. I did some little videos online, and so did Rory and Rachel, mm -hmm. and we're continuing to work on that, because the whole online, that's something that's obviously not going to go away again. And it's a, in a way, it's another very important income stream, because now all of us need to look at different ways to reinvent ourselves and use our skills and all of that. I have to tell you a quick little story about this woman who telephoned me about 10 days after lockdown and she was virtually in tears on the phone. Now, this is a woman, she's a highly achieving CEO in one of the top companies here in Ireland. She would run the country. Her husband is also CEO of another company. So suddenly she's at home with two kids and having to cook or produce food or feed the family, do something, because this is during the really strict lockdown, 21 meals a week. And so she was on the phone to me, absolutely, her life normally would have been, they would, herself and her husband, would get up early, get the kids up, give them probably a little bit of breakfast or something. Sometimes they took them in their pyjamas and delivered them into the creche. And then they'd pick them up in the evening, again in their pyjamas, having had their supper, take them home, 
meet them a story, put them into bed. The weekends, they ate our breakfast, lunch, dinner. They live in Dublin. And so suddenly, here's a woman who literally could run the country and in tears on the phone saying, I, I don't know what to do. I can't cook. What can I do? Please help me. So this has been such a wake-up call. We've allowed ourselves to become so de-skilled. And the other really serious thing that in all of our countries that I hope we now realize the importance of teaching our children basic life skills. So we're all on a mission to get practical cooking re-embedded back into the curriculum so that no kid can leave school with an A-level or with a leaving certificate over here without having done a practical cooking exam to prove they can actually feed themselves. And also, of course, we'd love every school to have a, a school garden too. But I mean, what are we like? It's just yeah. constantly on STEM subjects. We've failed in our duty of care to the last couple of generations by just giving them the impression that academic skills are the only skills that are important. And this lovely CEO in Dublin was a classic example of that. Degree after degree after degree, award after award after award, could hardly make toast and so on. And then floods of tears on the phone. Yeah. Anyway, there, sorry, I'm a uh, there are lots of rambly stories. Sorry, I'll go back. I'll come back to the point now. No, it's very interesting, though, isn't it? Because I think that that is something that has become cooking has become almost at the forefront of all of our minds now, regardless of how life was before. And it's a really interesting moment now for people to try and learn some skills where they didn't know them and to really think about valuing food more. I think one thing I wanted to ask you about was your new book, One Pot Feeds All. And I think that is such an interesting book in our time now. I recommended it in one of our earlier episodes because that sort of way of cooking feels so relevant for people to find a way of putting food on the table every day in a way that fits in with all of our other commitments in life. Yes. I mean, I'm glad you really like this book because I wrote this book really because it was obvious that the, as people are getting busier and busier and busier for a lot of people's lives. They're working, both partners are working all day, and uh, obviously, and then they're dashing home to the traffic, you know, trying to dash into the supermarket to grab a few ingredients. Many, many are very aware of the importance of putting a nourishing, wholesome, comforting, delicious something on the table for their family, then they're grabbing the kids from the, from the creche or whatever, come home exhausted, try to put a meal on the table. And my goodness, it's so hard for them all to keep all the balls in the air. And, you know, it can't be all things to all men. So with this, I wrote this book and dedicated it to all those young people who are so frantically busy, not even young people, older people too, and hoping that it would be a help. So there's both the savoury and sweet dishes in it and uh, everything can be cooked in one pot, one roasting tin, one baking tray, etc., etc. And there's some many yummy, yummy things in that. And for a lot of people, even though I've written a lot of books, that is really their firm favourite. They say they can always find something. There's some vegetarian things, lovely, yummy vegetarian things, and even some vegan, accidentally vegan things in it too. So, and also the recipes, as you know, from because we are a cooking school, the recipes are so well tested over and over so that when somebody does it, the recipes actually turn out to be work exactly and be delicious. With, well, at least that's what people tell me. And I, quickly yeah. right, I feel a very strong sense of responsibility to write recipes that will work for people. I'm delighted that they 
find them. And you, Charlotte, I know you feel this way, Sonia, too, but one of the things that's really worth hanging on to, doesn't matter how busy you are, is to try and sit down around the kitchen table and, you know, pop a big pot or something in the middle of the thing and you can, everybody can tuck in. And so sitting around the kitchen table is so much more than just eating, it's sharing, it's communicating, it's even learning table manners, all the other, and learning how to discuss something without having a big row. And, and even if you are arguing, it's still keeping the lines of communication open, which is incredibly important. And it's so much what memories are made of, isn't it? Sitting down around the table. And, Very much so. And no phones. And that's hard to extract the phones from the younger ones, particularly. But for that, even... 15, 20 minutes, it's so worth it, isn't it? It yeah. is, it is. And in terms of shopping, you mentioned, I mean, as we know, you know, good cooking starts with good shopping. And what have you noticed in Ireland in terms of changes in shopping habits? We've certainly seen over here that more and more people have been turning to independent quality producers and yeah. shunning the supermarkets. And we hope that that's behaviour that to a certain extent may be sustained as we start to revert to more normal life. What have you seen in Ireland in that respect? People have been embracing it with your neighbour food. Yeah, well, it's really interesting you say this because over here, because our farm is organic and all our produce that we produce and all that obviously is organic. And so it always it has to be a little bit more expensive and so on because, you know, things take much longer to grow and rear, all of that kind of thing. And But we noticed that during and this is how it continues during the pandemic, that basically people are suddenly, the penny seems to be dropping with a lot of people, that they would be much better to invest a little bit more money in good quality, healthy, wholesome food, to nourish them and to boost their immune systems, rather than spending it on just on meds and on supplements. I mean, oftentimes before people would say to me, because well, I would for, for years and years advocate this, our food, that should be our medicine. That's what our medicine. I was brought up with a mother, I'm the eldest of nine children. I was brought up with a mother who, she always so believed that you, if you didn't put the effort into the, and the money into the food on the table, you would, she used to say, give us the doctor or the chemist. So basically a lot of people who would never have gone out of the way to buy organic, who would really have just done a big shop of, you know, a lot of ultra processed food in the supermarket or something, suddenly thinking, well, hang on a minute. If I spend a bit more and source healthy, wholesome, delicious, fresh, organic food or chemical-free, whatever way you like to put it, then this is a real investment. And this has been a really noticeable trend. And I, sometimes people would say to me, you know, it's all very fine for you to, say, spend 50 or whatever more euros a week on your invested in the, in the food, you know, because the perception is that I can afford it. But I say to people, hang on a minute now. We all make decisions about how we're going to spend our time and our money and so on all the time. And I say, well, look, hang on a minute now. How much do you spend on those nails last week or your magazines or your hair or your whatever? And then we suddenly realize that actually investing in gorgeous, healthy, wholesome food is a long way down a list, the list of many people's priorities. And even people, there's some people who don't have a choice in many ways, but everybody deserves and needs and must have healthy, wholesome food. And that doesn't have to be expensive food. I mean, think of the price of potatoes, a bag of potatoes, even organic potatoes or cabbages, or those things are quite inexpensive. But basically, it's a question of saying, well, how am I going to spend my food euro? What am I going to choose? 
and how am I going to invest my money so I get the best you know, return from it in terms of health and boosting the immune system. And saying that in both Europe, in both in the UK and over here, I'm really baffled by our health services who are, you know, delivering the messages about social distancing and hand washing and all of that, which is so important, are not also saying, and by the way, this is a time more than ever to invest in healthy, wholesome food to boost your immune systems. Incredibly important at any time, particularly at this time, to remember the importance of eating healthy food for our gut biome, for both our mental and our physical health. There's a lot of people who are really many mental difficult problems with people, depressed nerves, particularly caught in, in tiny apartments and high-rise buildings with no garden or anything. So, And again, the comfort of cooking a few things together, passing on the skills to the children, all of the fun of that has really, it's not of insignificant importance. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting, Darina, what you're saying about the government and the messaging. So it's come to the news stories that obesity may well be a factor in yeah. this, but then they're not making the next link. The government yes. messaging isn't saying, and therefore the yes. way to deal with that. And also, you know, you were talking about gut health and there is a link they now know between the gut and mental health and the gut brain axis. Again, nobody is, is telling people who might not know this the way to to improve things is exactly. what you eat. And there's that bit of the message that's the key part that seems to be missing. Somebody needs to get that out there so people yeah. And in a way, it absolutely ought to be a priority. And I mean, all of the, to get the top marketing people out with sound bites, I mean, they can do it. They can change a mindset of a whole nation in quite a short time by sharp, crisp messages on linking food to how we feel and all the rest of it. You know, actually this Thursday, we've been developing actually a whole series of food as medicine courses here at the school. And on Thursday, I'm teaching a food to uh, feed your gut course on, on Thursday. And, you know, we're, we've been passionate about that for quite a long time. And we'll do, of course, uh, some fermenting and sourdough and all of the other things. Plus, we, a lot of research has been done here in UCC and over in the UK, of course, with Tim Spector and his colleagues and so on. So much is known. So basically, we'll show, I think, from him as well. But also, back to obesity, it's very clear when they take a sample of your micro your gut and your microbiome and so on, you can clearly see the actual bacteria and that word is often used in the sense of being pathogenic, but you can see what's linking it to obesity. It's very clear. They can take samples and that's well proven now as you obviously have referred to there earlier. Mm. And actually, you know, fermented food is, is becoming much more recognized. Obviously, it was a thing back in the olden days and sort of went off radar. And, and now people are becoming aware. But even just a wide variety of food in your diet, so fresh, nutritious food, that yeah. in itself increases the gut yeah. microbiome. And I think yeah. people just don't, you might think, well, I can't make sourdough because I've only learned in lockdown how to make sourdough <laughs> for my family. But actually, yeah. if you just eat a wide variety of things, you're already benefiting your system. And I think it's, you know, learning to cook basic skills, eat lots of fresh natural yeah. things. Yeah. Just on that subject, actually, here at the school, because we also have a fermentation shed where real magic goes on and, you know, making 
you know, all the kefirs, water kefirs, kombucha, all that sort of thing, plus sauerkraut and kimchi and blah, 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 all of those, kabas, etc., etc. And we sell uh, those in the little shop we have too, and we teach, of course, the students. But actually, a couple of years ago, I linked up with, with Professor Ted Dan in, in UCC in Cork, the University College of Cork, and I suddenly, because he had come and given several talks to slow food and to the students and all of that here and at our literary festival a number of years ago but i said to him look ted i've just suddenly realized in three weeks time i have another group of 12 week students coming in literally from all over the world how about you guys would you be interested in us linking up with your research why don't you guys or how about you guys think about coming down taking a poo sample from the students before they eat a bite of food in the school and then another one at the end and comparing it because also, of course, the students have the option to drink raw milk here at the school as well from our Jersey herd. Anyway, they couldn't do it on that. They, he, he was back within a few hours and said, yeah, we'd really be interested. Couldn't do it on that one because they had to get permission from the ethics committee. Did it on the following one. That's all been published now, peer-reviewed. And surprise, surprise, no surprise at all, that the difference in the students' microbiota, their gut biome, was dramatically different. Because as well, not only because of, of the fermented foods and the raw milk and everything, but because exactly what you keep on flagging up there, which is so important, the biodiversity of their diet. Because on a 12-week course, they're eating different dishes every single day as well for 12 weeks. And the breads, of course, would be repeated, but the other things not. And so basically the biodiversity in their gut was off the scale. Yeah, after three months. Doesn't surprise me. I can attest to that. It's actually quite difficult to leave and trying to find food that is that good quality to sustain that way of eating afterwards because you've managed to create it all at Ballymaloo, but it is hard to find elsewhere. It's not matched in a lot of places. But, you know, I have 12 weeks to indoctrinate you all and then everybody goes off all over the world and they many many people start to grow something themselves yeah. even balcony or whatever because they feel the need they of course shop in a different way at farmers markets and so on and then i often get little emails from students say hey i got my chickens i got chickens at last and you know it takes a while sometimes to be in, a, in a, an environment where you can actually have a few chickens and then when they laid their first egg there's great excitement so yeah you know, Students, they want a different, and they like you, they really want to find the same kind of produce because, you know, a pretty open secret that when you start off with really good quality, fresh, beautiful ingredients, you need to do so little to get it to taste good. Whereas if you start off with mass-produced, denatured food, then you have to be a magician, and that's where all the squiggles and bows and smarties on top come in, the foams and all the rest of it, to compensate sometimes for the fact that flavour wasn't there in the first place. Absolutely. Now, Jorina, let's turn our focus to what's going on at the moment. Now, you mentioned your class coming up on Thursday. So the cookery school has reopened. Ballymaloo House has reopened with social distance dining. Could you tell us what the picture is at the moment and how you're going to gradually open things up over the coming weeks and months? Good. Well, we reopened the school rather tentatively about two weeks ago. Uh, we're very fortunate in the school. We have five kitchens, three big kitchens and two other smaller areas. But we started literally with a couple of summer cooking courses, which are a combination of demonstration and hands-on cooking. And we start off with the students. We take them for a walk around the farm and gardens, collect some of the ingredients 
and people are just intrigued to see a lot of uh, we we grow maybe 80 90 different crops on the farm when i say crops timmy goes mad because he says crops are not field or something but it's very often small quantities something but we grow 25 different varieties of tomato blah 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 we also have an, an acre of greenhouses so you know i took the students down to the farmer gardens they picked the herbs they picked peas off the plant too and i don't know how many people have asked me in the last couple of weeks how do you get the peas out of the pot how these are grown-up people so you know it's it's really frightening sometimes how disconnected we have come from food and then they love picking broad beans and all the little broad beans you know inside in the and thing and to show people how to pick tomatoes you know the little hinge at the top of the calyx there so we we go down and do that then they have a short demonstration for about now then into the kitchens and then of course sit down enjoy it so we've done several of those last week this afternoon, my brother Rory O'Connell, whom you remember, of course, he's got such a devoted, loyal following now for his television programs and also for his cooking. So he's doing a demonstration this afternoon. We also have going on at the other side of the farm, Tom Petrick, our consultant head gardener. He's actually doing the first of a series of gardening courses. And this one is how to grow food in an urban garden and how to plant it and how to grow it. And we have a little urban garden kind of classroom here that we use for our six weeks sustainable food production course. So they're using that. Then what else is going on? Then we'll have a couple of uh, one week introductory courses in a couple of weeks time. The first one is totally full. The second one we still have a couple of places on. And then we're going straight into a five week course, which is for people who can't take 12 weeks off. And then there are other short courses, uh, you know, just keep an eye on the website. It's cookieisfun.ie. And then, of course, we do a lot of, we can do private courses for people um, if they want a one-to-one or two people or groups, three or four friends. And needless to say, we're also with a much reduced number of students because where there would have been 18 in the kitchen, there would now be nine or maybe eight students. And so we have for social distancing, and that's the way it is at the moment unless things change a little bit. And uh, but we've put in all the precautions and all of that. And then people can wear masks if they want to. Not everybody wants to wear a mask and all of that. So that's going on. So, And then we also do, we're linking up with some companies who want to put on courses for their team of staff, either online. And we're doing quite a lot of online things as well and continuing to build on that. So, and you know, it's really, for all of us now, there's nobody who's unaffected by this in business terms apart from anything else. So we just have to forget the pride, get on with it, just many different income streams. So it's, you know, anything from the, of course, we also do the farmer's market still on a Saturday. In Middleton, the farmer's markets have reopened again here in Ireland. Now, I think over your, have the farmer's markets reopened over your way? Yes, but a lot of them don't seem to be operating at quite the same scale as before. Yeah. Well, we have, you know, obviously we have to try to monitor the crowds and all that as well. It's difficult enough because when you let people out, they're almost giddy with excitement. But people have been are very aware of social distancing and all of that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, talking of being allowed out again, Darina, what have you particularly missed during this very strange time where we all have had to, to stay in and, and not see our usual people and do our usual things? What things have you missed? Have you got three things that you're looking forward to? Well, you know, the funny thing is we live in a, an unusual situation. First and foremost, we live out in the country in the middle of a farm. And we have 
four children and 11 grandchildren, and they all live within five minutes of us. So basically, we were able to see them, if not hug them. And we were just, I'm 71 now, and my husband is just 70. So the only time we were what they call cocooned, I don't know if you use the same word over in the UK, where we were pretty much locked in for a fortnight in the beginning of the initial lockdown period, where I had to stay in the house. But again, I'm so used to being very active. That first and foremost, I was appalled at the idea of the thinking that 70-year-olds, I know they didn't really mean this, but the whole thing, I really, really felt we were over the hill and kind of well past our sell-by date and not really, in a way, it, felt, it sounded as though we hadn't much to contribute. Well, I didn't like that at all. And I'm used to being very active. So, you know, I, after I got over the initial shock of that, I started making jam and everything in here in the kitchen and... Of course, I write for a weekly newspaper every week anyway, so there was a certain amount of that going on. So even in those two weeks, I found I couldn't even go out as far as the school, which is only about five minutes from my home here for those two weeks. But then after that, I have to tell you that it hasn't been a question of trying to find... I've been working six days a week for the last, whatever that was, 14 weeks or something, you know, keeping everything going, keeping the, our whole team guiding and working with them and keeping our local community, our local parish fed and all of that. So in all the little bits of the jigsaw, all connected to food going. And the team have been amazing. I mean, there's nothing like a challenge to make bring out the best in us all. And also to make us think more creatively, make us think outside the box. And this is a time of great tragedy for many, many people, heartbreaking but also, it's a time of great opportunity. There are many, many opportunities now to perhaps do things in a different way, start different kinds of little businesses. It's been very interesting to see the sort of businesses that have survived COVID and even done so much better during COVID, and not least, of course, people providing sanitized. A friend of ours actually made gin called Bertha's Revenge up in... Oh, yes. Yes, and he immediately, again, great entrepreneur, great one to think outside the box, think what now? And suddenly they have a wonderful guest house called Valley Valam, and they also make Bertha's Revenge, this gin. And he, of course, changed quickly to making a sanitizer with uh, 80% proof. <laughs> so, you know, there's all kinds of, one just has to, there's nothing like having your back to the wall to think, well, what can I do? And uh, when the cooking school was born out of desperation in 1983 when, you know, the whole cheap food policy kicked in and we were getting less and less for our produce all the time, plus the recession, plus 25% inflation, plus blah, 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 all those things. We had to say, well, what can we do now to earn a living, keep the roof over our heads, educate our four little children and maybe have a little holiday sometime. So it's back to square one, back to making jam and you know, starting to teach again with the first course, the first class we had when we went back, came back again, was exactly the number of students, nine students that I had on my very first 12-week course. So it was like history repeating itself. So I love a challenge. And as long as we can keep our health and hopefully keep well, we'll just restart and rebuild and go on from there. So that's the plan. And so we can continue to do it. So you come full circle. Full circle, full circle, mm. yeah. Well, I think innovation is one of the things you do so well and we wish you all the luck with reopening and adapting and 
I'm sure that we will be making some positive changes to our food systems throughout all of this. And uh, Does it, you were asking me there, what did I miss? Well, basically, I really, of course, being able to hug the grandchildren was one of the things that we really miss, but they're able to run around and all that. But also, we have a little tiny house down in West Cork, and I miss being able to get there. But a couple of weeks ago, as things gradually loosened up, we were allowed to drive. I actually didn't drive anywhere further than the Middleton Farmers Market when they opened, which was about 10 minutes away from us. I didn't go into Cork and still haven't gone into Cork or anything. But basically then, when it loosened up, we were allowed to go anywhere within our county. And Cork is the biggest county in Ireland. So we were able to go down to our little tiny house in West Cork. And that was such a joy. I did miss that. But on the other hand, I have very little to complain about, many things to feel blessed about, because how fortunate to live in the, out in the middle of a farm. We were able to go for walks. The gardens are beautiful at the moment and have been. And I don't know whether it's just that I've had more time this year to look at things, but there seems to be, the birds seem to be singing, you know, louder. The, the garden seems to be more beautiful than ever. And uh, I think it's nature trying to cheer us up in the midst of all of this. Well, you're looking extremely well, Darina. Our listeners won't be able to see your lovely smiling face, but you look healthy, hale and hearty. Thank you very much for your time and stay well. And I'm hoping to book a, a course and come over and see you soon. I've been having a little look on the website. It looks amazing. Oh, so, thank you very much. Thank you. That was so interesting. I have to say, I do really fancy doing a course at Ballymolo sometime soon. Absolutely. I can definitely recommend it. And now let's hear what Michelle has to say. Michelle Rue Jr. is one of the UK's best known chefs. The Rue family have been one of the most influential dynasties in British food. In British food. His father, Albert Rue, worked as a private chef and Michelle was almost born in the, in the kitchen as his mother went into labour whilst helping him in the kitchen. After leaving school, Michelle went into a patisserie apprenticeship and worked in a number of roles before taking over the family restaurant Le Gavroche in 1991. Since then, he has successfully delighted old and new customers alike, introducing new classics to the menu, lightening and modernising the options. Le Gavroche has continuously operated for 53 years until lockdown, which forced them to close. Michel is a regular on the television and is well known for his role judging MasterChef The Professionals. Michel is a champion for new talent and chair of the Rue Scholarship Competition. Michel Virginia, welcome to the Pandemic Pantry podcast. Good morning. Good morning, Michel. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us, how have the last few months been for you? Um, well, it's been locked down, so um, as you can see, that the hair's gone gone a little bit wild. Um, <laughs> like, likewise, the beard. Um, but, but other than that, uh, it's it's been a, a nice time to reflect. Do a lot of cooking, cooking at home for two with my wife. Um, uh, probably a little bit too much drinking. Um, and other than that, just already from day one that we were locked down, thinking about how we are going to reopen. And not yeah. knowing, I guess, not knowing how long you were going to be locked down for and how much notice you would have to reopening a lot of thinking, but with uncertainty, really, not able to actually plan for definite. That must have been odd. Absolutely. I mean, when we were uh, locked down and ordered to close, um, in my mind, I thought it would be only for a few weeks. Uh, and here we are, you know, a few months down the line. 
uh, and, uh, and you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Although saying that, the, you know, the virus will still be around and, you know, there's, there's a probability, probably a, a pretty big probability that we may be forced to shut down again. Um, so, you know, it, it's very uncertain times. And would you say you're more prepared having, you know, nobody expected this to happen um, mm. and it was so quick and so sudden and so definitive. If you had to shut down a second time, would it be easier or would it be worse because then there's more loss of business? Well, how do you feel about that? I, I think I think we would obviously be a little bit more prepared um, because, uh, you know, we've, we've been through it once before, uh, but we would need more help from the government. Um, and then after a second wave and, and being forced to close, I'm not sure the appetite of our guests would be there, if you pardon the pun. I think people would be even more scared of going out again. So and I, I, really, I really don't know. You know, I haven't got a crystal ball. I can't tell the, the future. Um, but I do know that people do want to go and eat out, do want to socialise, because that is the number one thing that people have been missing, and that's socialising. It's not just eating out in restaurants. It's socialising, gather, gathering groups of friends and uh, meeting new people um, and, you know, all this virtual meeting of people and malarkey is, is you know it, it's all right but it's not the real thing is it it's not not looking people in the eyes and and sharing food and and you know sharing great times together Absolutely. You're so right. And as we record this, we have just heard um, what the um, plans are going to be for reopening. So we are able to, um, you know, get a slightly better idea of when things are going to start to reopen and what they might look like. So tell us mm. about your plans for Le Gavroche. Yeah, so we, we're reopening on the 7th. Uh, the actual date is the 4th of uh, July to reopen businesses or, or, or um, uh, pubs and restaurants. Um, but I chose the 7th. It, it means we're starting the week, basically, starting on a Tuesday as we would normally, rather than start trying to start on a Saturday, which I, I think does, doesn't fit right with me. Um, so training days, because there's a lot of training uh, that's going to have to be done on the um, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Saturday, we I've invited a a few friends and family to come for dinner uh, so I can get the, the, all the front of house and the kitchen to actually go through a service as if it was real um, and then we can get some genuine heartfelt feedback from the people that I've invited you know they can say well actually you know what this doesn't really work or this looks a bit awkward or so that you know we can we can then go live as it were uh, on the Tuesday. Fantastic. And what about your teams? Are you able to bring um, everyone back from furlough? How many are in your team? And what about your suppliers? Mm, yeah, well, most of the suppliers are still still there. They're, they're hanging on by the, you know, the skin of their teeth, as it were, because, you know, some of the fish, fish suppliers, for example, they're very, very small and, and their business has been decimated. And, and likewise, some of the butchers I have up, up, in, um, up in the Lake District, you know, they had thousands of lambs ready to go. Um, and, uh, well, <laughs> I suppose in, in a nice way, they're still up on the fields and enjoying themselves. But but, you know, that's lost business. So it, it's very, very tough. You know, people don't often think about that, that side of the business. There's a trickle down. Isn't it? I mean, it's not just the, the hotels and the restaurants. It trickles down all the way down to all of our suppliers. And it's very, very tough. But the, the, um, the, the staff, um, we're going to be using the flexible furlough system, so, um, which means that everybody will 
still have a job, which is fantastic. That's, that was the, the aim of the furlough system, to keep people in employment. Uh, so we're, as long as we can get guests in, paying customers in, we will be able to retain all of our staff, which is, which is great. And so they'll be working um, a mixture of two, three, four days a week to start off with. Um, and then we'll hopefully, by, by come September, October, we'll be on you know, full five days a week. I'm saying sure. that, though, if I can, yeah, there is one thing which does you know, wind me up a little bit, is um, this uh, quarantine that the UK has slapped on us. Because uh, a lot of my front of house staff are Italian or French. Uh, and in fact, one of them is, is British, but he's gone on holiday. He's gone off to France with his girlfriend. So uh, I, I sent them emails warning them that possibly, you know, because we, we didn't know for sure when we were going to be allowed to open. So as soon as I knew the date, the real date, the, the official date, I sent them an email. But of course, it's very difficult to get flights back. So as a matter, I think there's five of my team that are going to have to quarantine and will not be able to be there for the training days. Yeah, uh, which, which is ridiculous. So I'm going to be five shorts, short of five staff for the first week of reopening. Oh, wow. You see, that's actually, I think, what going to be an issue for hospitality in general, isn't it? Because of the reliance on workers from overseas. I, I should think a good number have gone home and may not consider coming back, potentially. Indeed, indeed. I'm pretty sure you run a tight ship, Michelle, in your restaurant. Um, so what's it like doing this additional training for this new level of, you know, hygiene and health and safety? It's all about trust, isn't it, that the, the mm. diners will know that when they come to you, you'll have done things properly. You haven't had much time to get this all up and running again. Um, have you had much guidance? What's that all like and what can people physically expect when they come to you? Mm. Well, you know, you, you, you say we haven't had much time. We haven't had much time for the official guidance. But as I said earlier on, from day one of the lockdown, I was already thinking about how we're going to reopen. And I think all good professionals will have done that. In their mind, they will have uh, gone through different scenarios um, and how to make people <clears throat> uh, even more safe. Because let's not forget, you know, we're, we're in the restaurant industry, we're professionals. We already have very, very strict laws of how to operate. Um, and hygiene is, you know, is impeccable. So it's, you know, for, for me, we've had three months to think about it. And, you know, I've, I've already thought about all the scenarios and the guidelines came out yesterday and they confirmed most of what I was thinking. So I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not too worried about the training because I think it will be fairly fairly straightforward. Um, it's just a question of getting out of the old routines and getting used to the new routines. So, uh, for example, uh, how we're going to approach a table, how many times do we go to a table? Because service um, at the Gavroche was, was very um, touchy-feely is, is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. It was very, very, very interactive and very approachable. Now, we have to now get used to standing back a bit and minimizing the amount of times we actually go to the table and you know checking when you serve the wines or the water would you like us to pour or are you happy to pour yourself because you know that means again we're not topping up we're not going to the table it's all about minimizing risk and um, but nonetheless making sure that the customer has the most mind-blowing experience so you know that that's that's so so important and 
you know, it was interesting to read the guidelines, um, and I'm going to have to read them again because I, I seem to it seems to suggest that masks are not necessary um, for the front of house, which seems a bit odd to me. Um, so, if if we do wear masks, which I think we probably will end up wearing masks for the front of house, you can still smile, and you you can smile with the eyes. And people know when you are when you are smiling, even if you've got fake, you know, face your uh, cover your 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 mouth. So, you know, it's all in the gesture and the body language. So I think it's more about the body language than it is about the sort of smiling. There's lots of little things that we have to do, and you know, the cheese board. Now, buffets are, are not allowed, but you can still carve at a table. So, but all that will have to be done in a particular way. Um, and so definitely masks and gloves, but, you know, I, I, I think we can still manage to do you know, a beautiful um, ballet performance at front of house, even with these very sort of stringent guidelines. Fantastic. And what about the industry more generally? What support do you think the industry needs to um, to help get through this? Because there are so many people affected. It's not just long-standing businesses like you. It's all the chefs who want to, um, you know, who are training at the moment. You know, there's so many different aspects that are um, affected by this. What do you think the industry really needs to help it get back on its feet? It, it, it's a, I don't think it's just one, you know, there's not just one answer. It's, yeah, it's a really tough one because <clears throat> it's going to take a long time to get better. The job retention scheme, the um, the furlough scheme, <coughs> excuse me, would, is very good. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I applaud the government and Rishi Sunak for putting that in place. Uh, it's going to work and it's going to help a lot. Um, but it will come to an end and it, it's gradually coming to an end as well, you know from august onwards but the the loan as well the business loan it's a loan so it's basically adding more debt to a business um which is not good <laughs> really not good because it's only pushing the can down the road um the grants were very good for small businesses but my business was outside of the um the rateable value so i didn't get a grant um so it, it, it's very it's very tough i do genuinely think that that insurance companies should pull their finger out and actually no more than that i think they should look at themselves in the mirror really genuinely look at themselves in the mirror and and say are we doing the right thing are we being honest you know they have a responsibility as well to help everybody not just hospitality but everybody get out of this and they should share the burden. You know, they, they are sitting there in their ivory towers uh, and claiming innocence and, uh, and small print uh, and, and, you know, just any excuse so as not to pay up. Uh, yeah. Now, I, I genuinely had a, I still believe that I have a, a, a case to fight uh, and uh, my insurance company is, is taking, you know, taking the mick. Um, and then, of course, um, landlords uh rent uh, and i think you know some people are very fortunate they've got some great landlords others less so um and i do believe that a lot of landlords need help too so the government should leg legislate on this and put their foot down and say look there is an issue here let's sort something out 
uh, and, and you know, really put their foot down and be firm on this and say, for the good of the people and the good of the land, the good of the economy, the good of health, let's make a break. Nobody has to pay any rent whatsoever for the next six months. And then you just add that part of the lease to the end of the lease, which gives a breathing space to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as an aside, it's interesting you mentioned the insurance. I mean, I have a small catering business, but, you know, we do events and I had an email from my major insurer just saying, well, um, we're here if you need us, but of course we won't pay you anything for this. It's just completely um, sidestepping it. Never mind the fact that we can't actually operate in the first place. So it is, it is a complicated picture, isn't it? It is. And, but I mean, you know, you, you look in France, Switzerland, uh, and, uh, and in Germany, some insurance companies have paid up and mm-hmm. on exactly the same policies that, that you know, probably yeah. you and I have business interruption uh, yeah. policy uh, and they have paid up. And some insurance companies have made a gesture, even with, even with the policies that didn't have business interruption, they have made a gesture, only a few thousand euros, but they have said, look, we understand you are in trouble. There we go. And I think in times of crisis, we were talking the other day um, on an episode of this podcast about how people will look back on how other people behaved, whether it's individuals Mm. or whether it's companies. And in times of crisis, that's when, you know, people can show their true colours. They can be heroes or they can be, you know, very much the opposite. And you'll remember, won't you? I think we all will. Who went the extra mile and who really wasn't that helpful? And one one thing for sure. My insurance policy is coming up for renewal in a couple of months' time. They are not getting my money. That is for sure. Most certainly. Yep. And that's fair enough, isn't it? I think, you know, business is business, but there's a humanity um, that that should go alongside that. Yeah. They've they've been taking my money very gladly for the last, I think, I've been with them for about 15 years. No more. Wow. Well, I think think it will be incredible to see the sector reopen i'm sure you're really excited about getting Mm. back to some sort of normality in terms of of the restaurant and business and and diners and staff and you know the whole picture is has gone from looking awfully bleak and difficult to you know something to look forward to which is great (laughs) what are you personally looking forward to michelle um in terms of things you haven't perhaps been able to do during this strange period and what are you looking forward to about a return to some normality other than getting my hair cut (laughs) (laughs) um it 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 really is it's dining out because um yeah i mean i I used to eat out regularly uh we're talking once or twice a week um and uh, and that that's that's the one thing i miss um and, and i know dad as well because you know he's He's 84, so he's you know that age that so you've got to be very careful. And he's he's been properly locked down. He's hardly seen a soul for the last three months, uh, and it has been absolutely uh, you know it, well very very difficult for him, very depressing yeah. at times. Yeah. Um, so because he he used to dine out every day, wow. every lunch every lunchtime he would entertain and go out. Um, so you know he's yeah. He can't wait, really, yeah. literally can't wait. So yeah. I, I think that's, that's the number one thing. It, it's, it's the, and and theatres as well, going to see live performances. And, yeah. yeah. Is and, your father keeping well, apart from being um, somewhat isolated? 
<laughs> yes, much, much much better. The last the last couple of weeks have been much better because um, he's been allowed out. So yeah, yeah. it's yeah. so tough, isn't it? And will you be able to dine out on famille? Will you be able to uh, enjoy a meal out together? So you have the family and the food all coming to one. Yes, well, and well, I'm, I'm popping over to see him actually after this um, because he's got a problem with his television. So I've got to go and fix the telly or something. <laughs> but um, he's he's very keen. I told him that we're going to be doing a special uh, dinner on Saturday to um, you know get the get the team going again. So he's uh, he's going to be in, he's invited, and so. He's, yeah, overjoyed. Fantastic. Lovely. Well, we're planning a we're planning a visit as soon as we can. Jules and I are going to uh, <laughs> going to come and come and come and have a meal. It should be good. <laughs> good, good. I can't wait to see you. Joyful. Thank you so much, Michelle. Is there anything else you would like to get across at this point? Um, no, I, th- I think you know. Other than I think restaurateurs and chefs and you know everybody in the hospitality business should stay. Uh, stay positive. I, I know it's been tough, and I know some people are, are really very, very close to the edge. But, but stay positive. We're, we're about to open, and we're about to, uh, to to do what we love doing. And um, you know, I think that's that's the most important thing. Perfect. Thank you so much. We can't wait to put this episode out, and we'll let you know. Thank you for your time. Many thanks Thank indeed. Really nice to talk to you, and best wishes to your father as well. <laughs> yeah, I hope I get his telly going. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again. Bye. Bye. That was so interesting. Now, Jules, what industry news have you come across this week? Well, sales of frozen food have been soaring during lockdown, and that change is set to be a long-term change to our eating habits, particularly among younger shoppers, says new research by Iceland and Birdseye. Supermarket sales of frozen food leapt by 27.6% to 1.08 billion in the 12 weeks up to the 16th of May, according to Nielsen data. And a surge in interest from Gen Z shoppers looks set to further boost the frozen sector's fortunes as they turn to frozen lines for value for money and food waste reduction. A report in the Grocer magazine says that Marks & Spencer has admitted there will initially be limited scope for its customers to be able to shop with Ocado when its new online grocery joint venture officially launches in September. This is due to capacity constraints linked to the huge increase in people switching to online shopping during the pandemic. And in Tesco news, online orders, including Click and Collect, are staying at an all-time high. The number of online shoppers is now at 1.3 million per week, which accounts for 16% of all of Tesco's grocery sales. And Tesco convenience stores continue to see strong growth, with shoppers opting for little and often to top up the online shop. Tesco Express and Tesco One Stop say sales are up by around 10%. Jules, great insights as always. So instead of listener questions this week, I thought we could do a roundup of what's been happening with some of our previous guests. They've all been busy, of course, but some have been really busy. And here is what they're up to. In episode one, we spoke to Mitch Tonks, and they have now reopened Rockfish in Plymouth with an outdoor seating area, and they plan to reopen each branch on a case-by-case basis. The Seahorses restaurant in Dartmouth is running an outdoor space called Almare, which sounds very special indeed. In episode two, we spoke to Gil Mella, Mark Diacono and Holly Newton. Now, I've been growing lots of goodies, and I know you have too, Jules, and we've been growing some of the 
lovely things recommended by Holly and Mark and enjoying the fruits of our labours. In episode three, we spoke to Tess Lister at Shipton Mill. They've managed to catch up on their order book and their website is now open to the public. They even had a visit from Prince Charles last week. In episode four, we spoke to Minette Batters. She is hard at work championing the changes the NFU want to see in the new agriculture bill. And Peter Gregg from Piper's Farm is supporting a campaign to support small independent abattoirs to underpin the small family farm supply chain. In episode five, we spoke to Sophie Medlin, who went to work in London's Nightingale Hospital just a few weeks ago. And that just feels like so much has changed since then. In episode six, we spoke to Freddie Bird and he has now opened his little French restaurant in a neighbouring space adjacent to their Bristol restaurant. Anya Morris at Bristol Food Union is still working hard with her team to support local food businesses and has now moved away from supplying meals to NHS staff to other vital work in the city of Bristol. In episode 10, we spoke to Tom Parker Bowles. He has written now about his first meal in a restaurant. He went to Scots in London and wrote about it so nicely in the Daily Mail. Robin Hudson also reports positive feedback from reopening of the pig. And in episode 11, Ruth Watson has opened her ice cream shop in Framlingham and Ewan Venters has opened the dining spaces at Fortnum and Mason and they've been packed out. Well. Thank you for that roundup. It's great to hear what progress has happened since we spoke to everybody for series one. That's all for now, folks. Thank you very much for coming along for the ride, lovely listeners. Charlotte and I are going to have a short break from recording for a few weeks, but the great news is we have had such incredible feedback on the show that we're already planning series two. So lovely listeners, we will see you then and wish you all a wonderful few weeks of summer until we come back. Bye. And we'd just like to finish by saying thanks for listening, folks. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question about food and drink during the pandemic, drop us an email. We're on hello at pandemic-pantry.co.uk. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Pandemic Pantry Podcast. And if you'd like to enter our weekly competition to win a case of delicious Moorish dips or one of our other great giveaways, just head to our website and look in the competition section. The website address once more is www.pandemic-pantry.co.uk and we'll see you next week.